you will please turn with me this morning to 1 Peter to look at this passage from 1 Peter, which is kind of one of the main passages that we go to to understand our call and command even to be ready to defend our faith. And so as we've been discussing that in Sunday school, I thought it appropriate for us to look at this. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 8 through 17. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Our Lord Jesus, we are your children. We stand as those who only stand in your presence because the work that you've done for us. And so we stand here again this morning uh, needing your help with the words that you have given to the Apostle Peter many years ago for the church, for our sanctification, for your glorification. Um, Lord, help us to know what it means to stand in defense of the faith, of the words that you've given us. Teach our hearts and convict us of the sin that we have. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And so as I studied this passage, I was struck over and over by this idea of what it means to defend and defense. And you guys know that I'm a fan of things like weapons and swords and medieval warfare and that sort of thing. And so I'm always kind of thinking about this stuff anyway, really. And so, later in the week, I began to read about this idea of or looking at defense, and it brought me to the story of the Great Wall of China. You guys have probably seen it on TV or a textbook, or maybe you've actually been there. That'd be really cool. Um, and for me, I remember as a kid watching uh, David Copperfield, you know, the... Uh, illusionist guy. He walked through the Great Wall of China when I was a kid, and I just thought that was the most amazing thing, uh, even though it probably didn't actually happen. But So it's this incredible structure. It stretches across nearly all of China. The first parts of it were built in the 7th century um, BC, and then what we know of the Great Wall of China today was finished around the 14th century during the Ming Dynasty of China. And the Ming Dynasty was known for its structure and for its order, its advancement in arts and culture, science and technology. It ruled China for like 276 years. And if you've studied Chinese history, that's a long time. Uh, Many consider it some of the greatest years in the history of China as a country. The Ming Dynasty was able to stay in power for so long, in large part, because the Great Wall protected its northern borders. It was equipped with like 25,000 watchtowers, strong bricks, very tall, very wide, seemingly impenetrable. In fact, the enemy that brought down the fall of the Ming Dynasty never actually penetrated the wall the way that you might think that they did. But they did make it through the wall, so we'll talk about that in a little bit. As Christians, I think it's easy for us to feel today a lot like we are on the defensive. Why is that? When you turn on the news and you read things that you consider to be good 
and right things, and they're being kind of just tossed under the feet of the world and flattened. Um, the world doesn't really give care to God's truth or order, and it actually does just the opposite. It takes something like Scripture and it considers it just another work of dime store fiction, which is just a travesty. So as a believer, it's easy for us to get discouraged. It maybe even want to throw in the towel with regards to things like evangelism and, and defense of our faith. Worse than that, I think many churches and Christians as individuals have turned coat and have taken side with the world saying things like, well, the church just needs to come into the 21st century. We're not sure what that means a lot of times, but it usually means capitulating in the things that we hold true. The Apostle Peter gives us some very timely words here in this epistle, which the scriptures are always timely. And as we examine this text, we're going to look at that in three main ideas. First, Peter calls us to believe, or as believers, to unite. Secondly, we are called to give a blessing to the unbeliever. And then lastly, we'll look at what it means to be prepared to give a defense to the hope that we have. And so with that, let's look together at the text, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. Let's stand together this morning in honor of the reading of God's Word. So 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and sees good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are upon are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, just real quick to kind of give us a quick context of what's going on here in the book of First Peter, since we haven't been studying it from the beginning. Um, Peter has just finished discussing what it means to for for believers to submit to the authority that is in their lives, and you can kind of see that probably if your Bible has headings, just looking at the headings there in chapter two, what it means for the authority in their lives, whether it be the government, uh, their occupations. Or in the home, the, the Lord has set a structure of authority in those places. And so what does that mean to, to submit to that? Well, in each case, Peter calls the people to this 
so that those who are watching might be changed as a result of seeing that relationship, that interaction. Peter is writing to a church, and yet remember, he's writing to a church that's being persecuted in these in these spurts. Just here and there, they're being persecuted first by the Pharisees and the Jewish um, people, you know, just as uh, the kind of the, the Jewish sects of, you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And in the coming years, they were going to incur these emperor or empire-wide persecutions under Nero and then Domitian. And so he's preparing them for a time of persecution that was that would be to come. And Peter wouldn't even be alive for a part of that. He would actually die under Nero. And so even so, Peter gives the church then and even now, obviously, some very clear guidelines how we are to be toward one another and how we are to be towards the world. And so first Peter calls us to unity as believers. He writes this, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And so what's interesting about this, as you look at this, many of these attitudes that you read here, you know, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, these are all qualities that would be that would be desired in any home. Any the average take the average Greco Roman home that Peter was writing to. Well, whether they were believers or not, these are admirable qualities, are they not? Sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart. Anyone can look at that and say, that's exactly how I want my family to treat each other, with those things. Even that Greco-Roman mind, which was very secular in its thinking, would accept that the idea of unity, that everyone is moving towards a common goal in society, is a good thing. Of course, Peter's idea of, Christ, of, one, of a Christian being of one mind obviously doesn't really align with the society's view of that, since the world's idea of justice and morality are often in direct opposition to the Christian faith. And so then when it comes to humility, think about humility. This isn't something that would have been accepted by society then, and really isn't something that's accepted by society now. Now, if you think about it, and if you, if you read through things and you look at social media, people were always talking about humility and we should be humble and humility is, is a good thing. And, you know, what is humility? It's just basically considering others higher than yourself. The secular world might say that it values this, but in reality, anytime it's shown, it's trampled on. It's destroyed. This is one of the values that sets the Christian world apart from the secular Paul echoes this same idea in the epistle to the Philippians in chapter 2. What does he say? He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And you guys are familiar with this. This is uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 4. You want to turn there and look. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Look, let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Again, calling us to unity, calling us to humility of mind. And when Paul calls the Christian to humility, 
he's going to follow up with this idea of what true humility looks like, something that we actually can't attain. And he calls us to humility on the basis of what our Lord Jesus went through when he came to this earth and humbled himself even to the point of death. He says this, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This isn't the kind of humility we're ever going to be able to show, and so any of our humility falls short of what Christ shows us, and so Paul's standard for us is this absolute humility. The world can't know or show, and it's something that we're called to do as Christians. What does Jesus say to his disciples concerning this? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so, brothers and sisters, it's how we treat one another. And brotherly love and humility, sympathy, tender heart, that the world will see Jesus. And I think it also shapes how we treat them, which Peter turns to next. So Peter's next words begin with a section where he tells believers how they should treat those who will persecute them. Um, he says that we should bless them. Just a real simple comment. But on the contrary... Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes from Psalm 34, which we read for our call to worship today. Well, how can we do that? We treat them with the same dignity and respect that we would treat each other with. The same love, humility that we treat one another with, we treat them with that. However, there is one caveat when it comes to doing that with the unbeliever. We shouldn't expect it in return. When I give love and respect to a Christian brother and they don't return that, there's a problem there. Jesus tells us how to work through that, doesn't he? When I give love and respect to an unbeliever and they don't return that, that is the expectation because they don't know any better. And so when we come and when we do this for the unbeliever, our expectation shouldn't be to expect that in return, but quite the contrary. He even warns the believer, Peter does. He says, do not repay evil with evil, as we are wont to do, because sometimes even in our good works, we're going to receive evil. Again, we shouldn't expect the unbelieving world to do that, we shouldn't expect them to act the way that we've been commanded to act towards one another. And admittedly, this is difficult for me. Um, I know that every one of you are perfect at this, right? But this is, I'm difficult, or I'm, I struggle with this, treating each other with love and respect. Uh, you guys are all familiar with social media, obviously, and Facebook um, has a way of bringing out the finest in people. Um, and so... Daily, I read posts from people, and I've, I've actually gotten better at this. I've uh, started just blocking some of this. But um, I read posts from people who blaspheme God. They blaspheme the Lord of glory. They misquote scripture. They insult 
Christians and they call them intolerant bigots. And the average Christian isn't equipped to deal with that sort of garbage without just getting angry and throwing barbs. Well, um, I've been trained and I'm equipped to do that. And so normally, uh, well, while it doesn't bother me, occasionally I chime in with something that I think is witty and innocent. And I wonder why everyone is suddenly inflamed at me. Uh, in reality, what's actually happened here is I've posted my comment to get back at them in the most underhanded and seemingly innocent way I could because they hurt me. They hurt something that I hold dear. They hurt some people that I hold dear. Because I forgot the words of the psalm that we quoted this morning. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it real easy for us to fall into this trap. I admit my own ease in this. The lost will not see Jesus through my backbiting and my callous remarks. They'll see him through one who pursues peace and does good. So let that be a challenge to you all as well. Doing good is how the lost will see Jesus in us. Don't forget that the world we live in is always and only about serving self. And only good that anyone does is usually to build themselves up. There are really good doing people out there that aren't Christians. They're great people. And so I'm not questioning their motives necessarily. I just know what Scripture says about the unbeliever. It says that they can... Do no good. And so even the good that they appear to be doing is not good. Good for the sake of others is a rare thing in this world. And when it happens, people wonder why. They stare at it. They wonder what's going on. Why would anyone do that? Often in interactions between Christians and others, where there may seem to be some kind of supposed persecution, I think it's easy to see that simply by showing some humility and loving them like Jesus would, all conflict could have been avoided. You know, my friends who get it on Facebook and yell at uh, the unbelievers, and, and the unbelievers pull out their swords, if they would have just been nice, or for me, if I would have just been nice in those interactions, perhaps any of the conflict could have been avoided, and we could have come to at least some bit of, some bit of understanding as far as we can understand one another, but that doesn't happen when everyone gets out their weapons. This doesn't mean that we compromise the truth of what we teach at all. I'm not saying that, because we're not going to do that, but that we simply love the people that we are teaching it to. We love the people that we are teaching this truth to. It will go a long way to win them. That's just, we see that with our little Jesus, and we should see that in our own lives. But that brings us to this third point, which is to say that we should be prepared to offer a defense of the hope that we have. Peter begins talking about that there in um, verse 15. We should be prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have. There will be times when we will face persecution for doing good. God commands us to love one another and to love the lost, but he doesn't guarantee 
that that will be void of persecution. Peter says here, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what's doing good? Verse 13. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So what does Peter start with there in verse 13? He starts with a rhetorical question. Who is there to do harm to you if you're doing good? So he basically states that normally when we do good, there's going to be few people to condemn us for doing that. However, there are going to be times when we are persecuted for doing good. It reminds us that even in the midst of that persecution, we're going to be blessed. And I think this is hard for us because it's really hard for us to seek blessing in times of persecution. And I stand here as a Christian who's never truly been persecuted for what I believe. I've never been threatened with my life or my family, or I've never been threatened to lose my job or anything like that. Real persecution. But I struggle when I see it in the lives of other believers. Again, we don't face this kind of persecution, particularly the kind that Peter was facing in his time where they were just losing their lives. But we do see it. Perhaps you've lost a friend for what you believe. Perhaps you've uh, been passed up for a promotion, maybe, or something like that, outcast from your family. The list goes on. Again, we aren't facing death, thankfully, for what we believe. But we've lost relationships, and I think all of us can say that, that we've lost relationships because of the things we believe. We see our relationships strained because of what we believe. And again, it's really easy to take the low road and compromise on the truth in order to save relationships. Because a lot of times we see relationships as the most important thing because we're human. This is the way God made us. We're to be together. We want to save our relationships. But a lot of times we just do this to save face. Personally. Why do we do that? Because we're afraid that someone, of what someone might think. Or we're afraid of what it might do to our reputation. We have a certain something to hold on to, even how small that is. What does, Pete, what does Peter say to this? Have no fear of them. It isn't man that we should fear. Man has no power over us or the situations in our lives. I love what we read from the Heidelberg this morning, that, that God will somehow, even these Things that he has given to us that are difficult, he's going to make them into the good things. Because he's the one we should fear. Man shouldn't trouble us, because when it comes to our fate and our situation in life, man is completely and utterly powerless. The man that that is oppressing us and the man inside of us, or the woman inside of us. We are powerless to change those things. God alone controls us and our situations, and it is Him whom we should fear. Brothers and sisters, even in these times when truth is being trampled on, we have nothing to fear. Watch the news, and I have to admit that we kind of go into this self-protective mode, right? You know, when, when truth is being trampled on and... Uh, it seems like things are just upside down a lot of times. And I want to say things like, well, what if we aren't even allowed to have our Bibles out anymore? You know, that 
I've heard stories of of the mayor of a city uh, requesting all the sermons from a pastor and like trying to get that made into law. What if I'm not allowed to preach truth from the pulpit anymore? Well, then what if my children grow up in a culture where they won't be allowed to attend churches that preach truth? And it's amazing how quickly we digress into this panic and insecurity when we forget that our Lord Jesus holds everything together and protects us with a gentle and firm hand. We are his people. Remember what it says in Ephesians 1, he has set us aside from the foundations of the world. Though persecution may come, we are his. We have nothing to fear. And so what are we to do in the midst of this? We are to be prepared. Peter goes on to say, but in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do so with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer doing good, if that, if that should be Christ's will, than for doing evil. So first, what are, what are we told? We're told to sanctify Christ in our hearts. What does this mean? Well, it means that we set him aside as holy, as the one who dictates every part of our being. Many times when we see this phrase, I think, in our hearts, it's easy for us to make this an emotional kind of thing. It isn't simply a feeling that we have, though. It's something that requires our entire self. Every bit of us, every part of us, must be set aside for the work of Christ if we are to be prepared to make make a defense for what we believe. If we just rely on our emotions, what do we do? We get our feelings hurt, and we start shouting at everybody. It's good to be emotional. It's good to be passionate about something, but that's not all of who we are. But it also means that we can have a very watertight intellectual and logical argument for the truth of God. But if our life says otherwise, we might as well be blowing smoke. We might as well be saying nothing. Once we set Christ apart as holy in our lives, then we can begin the process of preparing a defense for the hope that we have. And so what does that mean? Again, we talked about this. The Greek word for defense here is the word apologia. This is where the word we get the word apologetics from. It's a basic defense of the Christian faith. There are many ways that we can go about this. We're learning about this in Sunday school, so I won't go into detail here. But in all of those ways, regardless of what they are, in all of those ways, we would be careful to stick to what? The truth. The truth that we know. With regards to the unbeliever, what does, what does Romans 1 tell us about the unbeliever? It says that he knows that God exists, but actively suppresses this truth in his life and exchange it for a lie. Even more, he is unable to understand the truth outside of God's own intervention to help him with that. The unbeliever will only ever suppress the truth about God. No amount of fancy reason or argument will ever convince him or her that they must have faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. That actually should comfort us, since we don't have to come up with the fancy arguments. 
Um, they will continue to attempt to save themselves, and they will fail. How does that affect our defense? Or the answer that we should give to them? We need only explain to them the thing that saved us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It makes our defense easy. There's no, there is no salvation in fancy arguments of logic, only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is that gospel that every Christian should be familiar with. Jesus came to this earth. He humbled himself. He became like us to save us. We were dead in our sins, but in Christ, God has made us alive. And he not only took our sin upon himself, but he gave us his perfect righteousness so that we, though through faith in him, might inherit eternal life. It's really that simple. That's a simple gospel. And some might say, well, if the unbeliever can't understand that, then why do we tell it to them? Brothers and sisters, we tell it to them because that's the mission that we've been sent on. We trust the Lord of creation for the results. We don't trust our own again. We don't trust our knowledge of the gospel or our ability to present it. We just trust him that he will bring those sheep who are his to himself to make disciples of all nations. It is the gospel message that he's given us to do this. And so again, on the subject of apologetics, it can be complex. It's something that I'm particularly passionate in and love. However, it's never more, it is never more than this, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who are desperate for it. If your apologetic doesn't involve the gospel, it is sinful and it is wrong. And so you may be wondering now then how the Ming Dynasty failed. Well, the wall was too high, too strong to be assaulted, and so the enemy just simply bribed the Ming general, and the general opened the gate. The greatest dynasty in Chinese history fell because someone broke the walls from the inside out. Brothers and sisters, as we consider our time in this world and the assault that is on everything good and true, we have two options before us. We can stand for the truth, still treating everyone with gentleness and respect as we are commanded to here, yet never wavering from the word of God, which is what we know to be right and good. We can stand for truth even when it's difficult, be prepared to tell others about this hope in the midst of all the crazy, or we can simply let the enemy in, little by little, compromising on one truth here, one truth there, until there's really no difference between the people of God and the world they live in. So people of God, let us come together, first and foremost, of one mind, living in harmony with one another, first and foremost. Taking this same attitude then into the world around us, we have to know that the people around us and the people in our lives are hurting and they need the Lord Jesus. So we show them the gospel. We do so not only with our words, but also with how we treat them, with gentleness and respect, all the while being prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Our Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the truth because were it up to us, we would only come up with a book of lies and a book that would give us glory. But Lord, you have given us the truth. You have given us the truth that stands for all eternity, will stand and continues to stand. You've given us the truth that is good and right, that brings you glory and is for the good of your people. And so, Lord, help us to know it, help us to study it, help us to be prepared to defend it. But, Lord, most of all, help us to love one another. Help us to love the lost, even though they won't return it. And help us to show the world who you are, that you are the Savior of the world. Thank you for that salvation we have. It's in your name we pray. Amen.